it seems that there are some questions that modern technology cannot answer, right? And so with that as kind of a little primer, here's what I'd like for us to think about today. Has science shown that Christianity is wrong? Has science shown that Christianity is wrong? And I, 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 I ask this question because we've been, we've been looking at a series of we call hot topics. And there are some in our culture who would say that due to all the vast increases in technology and science that there's really not much room or need for God anymore. For example, uh, in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. We read that as the first verse in the book of Genesis. And some have said it this way, you know, well, back in the dark ages, back when we had gaps in our knowledge, uh, what we would say is, well, God did it. If we didn't know, we'd just say, well, God did it. And so God became known as the, quote, God of the gaps. We only really leaned on him when we had a lack of knowledge or a gap in our knowledge. However, science has been filling in those gaps over the years, right? And many say that because of that, there isn't any need for God anymore. And the question is, is that true? Is that really true? Has science shown that Christianity is wrong? So let's look at that this morning and see if that's possible. The first thing I want us to think about is this. Christians must not be anti-science. You probably noticed this, and if you haven't, you, 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 you need to uh, get out a little more. <laughs> the, the, the reality is this. Christians are people of faith have often been viewed as being out of step with the scientific world that we live in. Uh, it's kind of like, we're, it's okay, you go to church, uh, read your Bible, do your church thing, but just keep it there. Uh, because really, you all are kind of out of step. You're, you're, you're looking at an old, ancient book, and science has been producing many, many new things. We're learning a whole lot more and you Christians, you people are kind of out of step with the scientific world. And our reaction must not be a knee-jerk reaction to be anti-science, as if we're, you know, it's us against them. It shouldn't be that way. Christians must not be anti-science. Let me give you a couple of reasons why. See a picture of uh, what's called a smoke bot. Uh, a couple of months ago, uh, these were introduced to go into burning buildings. They were engineered to go in and they have a, a lens where they able, they're able to see, in spite of the smoke, they're able to see what humans are not able to see and would put humans in great danger. And so these smoke bots can go in and take a look at what's going on in a burning building and then that can be communicated back to the rescuers. They also have another one that, that kind of, it, it's, a, it's like a floating hose that sprays water. And you can send it into the building and it will, it will shoot water out and put out the fire. And all of this, you can see, this would be great for rescue teams and for firefighters. And so where did this come from? Where did these things come from? 
Scientists did it. Scientists came up with this modern technology to help save lives. And so it's a good thing, right? It's a good thing. But then think about this. Back in 1900, the average life expectancy age for a white male was 47. And for the woman, it was 49. Now, this was in 1900. Now, in 2000, this up to 2017, last year figures, 79 years for a white male, 81 for a female. Now, that's a good thing, right? It's a good thing. I mean, notice how things have changed drastically in life expectancy due to scientists. See, science is a good thing. We need science. It gives us practical benefits of how to live well and to know well. So we need science. But we might say it this way. We need good science. What I mean by that is science depends on being open-minded in order to do honest investigations. Now let me, let me show you a definition of science first. This is from the National Academy of Sciences. Science is the use of evidence to construct testable explanations and predictions of natural phenomena as well as the knowledge generated through this process. So even scientists say this is what science is. It's the use of evidence. Okay? It's the use of evidence. And notice it's uh, predictions of natural phenomena. Science deals with what's natural, not the supernatural, but the natural. Now, it also says that it has to do with evidence. Now, think about it with me. Evidence is neutral. Evidence doesn't speak. When you look at evidence, it doesn't say, God made me, God made me, God made me. It It doesn't speak, okay? Evidence is neutral. And so, Evidence has to be interpreted according to a worldview. I want you to see a picture of two men. They're very much alike. The top is Bill Phillips. He's a physicist, Nobel Prize winner. Bottom, Peter Higgs, a theoretical physicist, also a Nobel Prize winner. Now, in that way, these guys are the same. They're looking at the same evidence. They're both physicists. They're both highly educated. They're both Nobel Prize winners. But they are divided in some way. There's so much alike between these two men, but there's one thing that divides them. Bill Phillips is a devoted Christian. Peter Higgs is a devoted atheist. Now, you might say, what divides them? Well, you say, well, one of them's a Christian, one of them's an atheist. We could say it this way. What divides them is not the evidence but their worldview. It's how they look at the evidence. The evidence is neutral. The evidence doesn't speak. It's their worldview that makes the difference. Let me say it this way. If I begin with the assumption that it's only evolution over time by random chance that all things came into being, then my starting assumption can end up blinding me to the results that I might not necessarily like. I want you to see a passage of Scripture in the book of Romans. Maybe this will help. Paul writes, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it 
Now, how, how, did, how did God do this? His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Now, here's what I want you to notice. In that section of verses, we find out two important things. One, we're told there is a God. Number two, he is powerful. Okay? There's a God, and he is powerful. And notice what Paul says. He says, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. Notice how Paul puts that. He doesn't say proved. He says perceived. In other words, Paul doesn't say, look, we've got proof here that there's a God. Here, this proves it. As if it could be mathematically proved with absolute certainty. He doesn't say it that way. No. He says clearly perceived. What does he mean? It means that God, in his creative work, has provided sufficient evidence, pointers, Things that look at it, it points to a designer. Uh, in other words, it would be indicators. Uh, maybe, maybe this story will help. Michael Egnor was a, was a leading brain surgeon. He was raised as an agnostic who regarded Christianity as an inspiring set of moral tales. They were maybe spiritual, but not true. In other words, he was, he was raised hearing about the Bible, even reading the Bible, but, oh, this stuff's not true. He said, as a science major in college, I was steeped in Darwinian evolution, which seemed to demonstrate that life could be explained perfectly well by material mechanisms alone. There was no reason to invoke God. But then, as, as Michael Egner began to continue in his field and began to climb the ladder in his field, while developing a theory of blood flow to the brain, his research took a surprising turn. He realized that the cranial system he was studying was like an ingeniously de designed gadget. The filter that protects the delicate caliparies from the pulsating force of the heartbeat is a finely tuned mechanism like the vibration dampers widely used in, in engineering. In fact, he said this, most of what I needed to know was not in biology textbooks, but in engineering textbooks. Eventually, Michael Egner realized that virtually all biological research operates on the presumption of design. In other words, as he kept looking at the evidence, his conclusion was somebody did this. Somebody designed it. It didn't just happen by chance. And that presumption, that perception led him to faith in a designer and then to faith in Christ as the designer in human flesh. So what are we saying? We need good science. Science is not something to be afraid of. It's not like, oh my goodness, it, it, it's going to disprove Christianity. No, not at all. We can't be anti-science. We need good science. We also need good Christianity. What I mean by that is this. We must appreciate that the Bible is not a modern scientific textbook. We shouldn't look at the Bible as if it's a science textbook. It's not what it's designed for. There are some things about which the Bible is simply silent. 
We'll see that a little bit more in just a moment. There'll be findings from science the Bible is more or less silent about. I mean, you can expect this. There's going to be findings from science, and the science is going to say, well, here's what it is, here's what this means, here's what this means, and we're going to look at the Bible, and the Bible's going to be silent about it. But on the other hand, there are things about life that science can't answer either. Now, science doesn't have to be anti-Christian. Christianity does not have to be anti-science. We live in a culture where we're told you have to pick one or the other, dude. You gotta, if, you're sci- if you pick science, that's it. Can't be faith. If you pick faith, can't be science. Don't believe that for a moment. Do some research. You'll find that there are many, many, many well-educated scientists who are one, either theists, they believe in God, a designer, or they are full-blown Christians. So don't believe this idea that you have to pick one or the other. Because while good science is a method of making sense of the world, Christianity is also a good method for making sense of the world. Notice this one passage in Psalms 111. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in him. So first this morning, Christians must not be anti-science. And what I mean also with that is don't be intimidated. Don't be intimidated by the findings of science. Why? Because next, let's look at this. Science is only one source of truth. Therefore, science is limited. I have brought with me today what we will call a science box. This science box represents science, okay? There's certain things that we can look to science to for answers. Let me give you some examples. For example, this question, what makes the planets move? Now, if we were to open the Bible and look for an answer to that, not so much. Look to science. Is this a question that science can answer? Yes, it would fit in the science box. That's a question that would fit in the science box. Or this question, what happens when things burn? Do we look in the Bible for an answer to that? No. That's a science for questioning. Does it fit, does it fit in the science box? Yes, it does. How about this one? How, how is an atomic bomb made? Do you look in the Bible to find that answer? No. Scientists can tell us. They've told us. This question fits in the science box. See, the point is this. There's certain, there's certain questions in life that we can look to science and they will give us an answer. Remember, science provides us with natural explanations for natural things. Not supernatural, but natural things. These things that we've asked, they fit in the science box. Now, I bring this up because we live in a culture that is rapidly embracing what is called scientism. Science and scientism are not the same thing. We are thankful for good science. But when it comes to scientism, we put the brakes on and say no. What does scientism mean? Scientism is the view that science is either the only or the most reliable way to know the truth about the real world. This billboard will help. It says, in science we trust. Uh, 
And notice it's not in God we trust. It's in science we trust. It's from the Freedom From Religion Foundation. And what they are promoting is the idea of scientism. That, that if, if we're going to find any truth, it's going to have to come through science. That's the only way we can know. That is what scientism says, that everything goes into the science box. But is that true? Does everything fit in the science box? Well, let's try a few questions. How about this question? Is there a God? Can science tell us, will it fit in the science box? No. Science can't tell us that. They can't with with any degree of certainty, yes or no. It won't fit in the science box. How about this question? Why is there a universe? They can tell us a lot about the universe, but can science answer why is there the universe? Will it fit in the science box, class? Will it? No. All right. How about this question? What is my purpose? What is my purpose here in life? What was I made for? Can science answer that? Will it fit in the science box? No. How about this? We, we said a moment ago, scientists can tell us how to make an atomic bomb. But can they answer this question? Should we drop an atomic bomb? Can science answer that question? No. Will it fit in the science box? No. One last one. Is it okay to steal? Can, can science tell us whether it's okay or not okay to steal? Will that fit in the science box? No. I mean, we go on and on all day with this. Um, we, we could go on and on all day with this, but see, my point is this. Science is not equipped to answer these questions. And therefore, science is limited in its scope. Right? So, so don't, don't feel intimidated. Be, be thankful for science. Do not be anti-science as a Christian or a person of faith. But science is limited in what it can answer. I think the best illustration of this that I've ever heard is by a man named John Lennox. John Lennox, uh, Brother Josh Eller and myself and some others, we were able to meet him a few years ago. He was at a conference in Ohio, uh, and John was speaking there. John is, uh, has, has three PhDs. He's a mathematician, uh, teaches at Oxford University, and he is a joyful believer, just a, just, a, just a gem of a man. And he's written a number of books, and in one of those books, he talked about uh, Aunt Matilda's cake, Aunt Matilda's cake. Okay? So I have here what we'll call Aunt Matilda's cake. It's a real cake, all right? It's a, it's a brownie cheesecake. Okay. Yeah. All right, we're going to take the cake. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the cake, and we're going to have, have it analyzed by some of the top scientists in the world. Okay. And so the nutritionists, they're going to be able to tell us the number of cal- calories and the nutritional effects of this cake. They'll be able to speak to that. Okay. Then the biochemists are going to weigh in, and they're going to inform us about the structure of the proteins and the fats. They'll be able to do that, and they'll do it well. Then there's the physicist. The physicist will analyze the cake in terms of its fundamental particles. They'll do a great job at that. And then the mathematicians, they'll weigh in, and they'll be able to produce a set of equations to describe the behavior of the particles. But now let's say that we 
ask all of the assembled scientists this one question. Why did Aunt Matilda make this cake? Can they tell us? No, they cannot. The physicist, the mathematician, the biochemist, the nutritionist, can you tell me, sir, why Aunt Matilda made the cake? To be honest, they'll have to say, no, I don't know why Aunt Matilda made the cake. I can tell you all about the cake. I can tell you how it was made. I don't know why she made it. And here's the truth, as John Lennox put it. We will only know why Aunt Matilda made this cake if she reveals it to us. I know why Aunt Matilda made this cake. It's because my middle granddaughter's birthday is tomorrow on August the 6th. Casey, will you come and get this cake? Her birthday's tomorrow. Aunt Matilda made this cake for Casey. You wasn't expecting this, were you, honey? <laughs> Happy birthday, dear. You're welcome. Hey, in the first service, I was just going to ask somebody whose birthday it was. And I was out in the vestibule, and some little boy was telling me, he said, hey, I'm going to a birthday party today. I said, whose? And he said, you know, my, my grandpa Leo, and it was Leo to Spain. I thought, perfect. It shocked Leo. Couldn't believe it. It was his birthday, and Aunt Matilda made him a cake. See, there are, here's my point. There are many things we believe and we know to be true that do not come to us from science. Let me give you a few more. We all believe it's good to give to those who are less fortunate than us. We believe that. We know that's good. Did science tell us that? No. It's wrong for us to discriminate against marginalized people groups. It's wrong for a powerful person to commit violence upon a weaker person. We all know these things to be true, but how do we know them to be true? Science cannot prove any of these things to us, and yet we know and believe them to be true. Amen? I like this quote. You'll see it's Richard Feynman. He's a Nobel Prize winner, theoretical physicist. This is his words. Outside of his field, the scientist is just as dumb as the next chap. (laughs) Now, that's not my words because, you know, we're not criticizing scientists and science, not doing that at all. But this is a Nobel Prize winner uh, scientist who says, hey, look, you know, when we start dabbling in other fields, we're just as dumb as anybody else. One last thing I want you to see this morning, and we're going to focus on our text finally. Christians are people of faith, but not blind faith. Christians are people of faith, but not blind faith. Folks, I tell you what, you need to be careful when you hear the word faith thrown around. Because sometimes people are talking about something entirely different than biblical faith. Some people, when they speak of faith, they're talking about some kind of internal power. I'll have enough faith. I'll have enough faith. I'll get God to do this. And I'll finally wake him up because I'll have enough faith to do it. That's not biblical faith. That's not biblical faith. Secondly, it's not blind faith. Mark Twain, you'll see a picture of him. He's famous for one of his statements is this. He asked, what is faith? Faith is believing what you know ain't so. See, that's, that's blind faith. That's, that's, I, I'm, I've got faith, but I know it's probably no, no hope that it's going to come to pass, you know. Does Jesus call us to blind faith? To just, hey, here's what I said, just believe it. Notice this passage in John 14. This is one of many examples. Jesus said this, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. So notice what Jesus is saying. Believe me, believe the direct evidence that I'm giving. 
Believe me because I've, I've said it. Believe, believe me because I said it. I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. Believe it. Or, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. In other words, Jesus is saying, you can either believe the direct evidence of what I say or else believe the indirect evidence, the circumstantial evidence. In other words, the works that I've done. Look at what I've done, Jesus is saying. Look at my life. Look at what I've done. See, Jesus gave more than just his direct testimony. I mean, many religious leaders in the world, many religions will say, just believe Just believe, just have faith. Jesus gives more than just direct testimony. He did not call us to blind faith. Biblical faith is a combination of trust and knowledge. Notice in our text this morning, Hebrews 11 and 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Look at a couple of things here. The word hope. Hope is a positive expectation of a desired future event. Okay? Notice, a positive expectation. Notice, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. See, I'm hopeful in the, in the return of Jesus Christ. Not in the sense that, oh, good grief, I hope he comes, you know. You know, kind of step out there and I hope he comes. You know, no, no, it's not that kind of hope. It's a confident expectation based upon everything else he has promised, everything else he has done. It's reasonable for me to put my hope in him. So hope is a positive expectation of a desired future event. But then there's the word faith. Faith is trusting in the one who promised to make the event happen. Now, you notice those last two words are, um, let's go back to verse one. Could we, here we go. Notice this, the conviction of things not seen. And you might read that and you go, oh, wait a minute. That sounds like blind faith. We don't, we don't see things not seen. Well, let's look at the next passage there that we read in Hebrews 11 and 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, let's just look at that for a moment. One of, one of the interesting discoveries I made this week as I was going over these passages was the word understand. It says, by faith we understand. And I, I track that word down, and it's, it's the exact same word that was in the passage we looked at a few minutes ago, clearly perceived. It's the same Greek word. Clearly perceiving something is understanding it. Understanding something is clearly perceiving it. So what does it say? By faith, by trusting, we understand, we perceive. What does that mean? It means God has called us to use reason, human reason, to infer that the cause of what is visible, the cause of what is visible is invisible. In other words, Faith is not blind even when we cannot see. We see the evidence of the physical world around us. And this compels us, listen, to reasonably infer that it must have come from a non-physical, unseeable source. We see the evidence of the physical world that God has made. And this compels us 
to reasonably infer, to perceive. Not, not, not mathematical proof. No, it's not what the Bible is offering here. It's reasonable inference that it must, this must, it's just like Michael Egner. This must, there's a designer. It has to be. It doesn't make sense any other way. It must have come from a non-physical, unseeable source. And we trust God to be that source. Now, one final thing. We said a moment ago, Aunt Matilda, we cannot know why. We cannot know why that she made her cake unless she tells us. And so that brings us to a question. Has God said anything to us? Has he spoken? And if so, how has he spoken? Notice in Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now stop and notice just a few things. The God that we're talking about here is the God who speaks. He's not an idol. He's not a a, a blob of stone or molten metal. He is a God who not only hears, but he speaks. Notice this also. How does he speak? In what way has he spoken to us? Was it an audible voice? No. He's spoken to us by or through his son. Now, what does that tell us right away? We shouldn't be expecting science to answer these big questions. This is not so much science as it is another discipline that is just as valid. History, history. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus came into time and space. He came down from heaven and took on human flesh, came into time and space, into history, that we might know and be reconciled to God by trusting in him, trusting in him doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, and that we might become part of his glorious eternal kingdom. We look back in history. We don't look to science. We look at the discipline of history, a real person, a real Calvary, a real resurrection. That's why we sang earlier, my hope is built. My hope is built. We sang, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. When it speaks of his blood, it's his substitutionary sacrificial death, the giving of his life. His righteousness is the perfect life that he lived. My hope is built Listen, my hope is not built on what science may say about the age of the earth. Oh, my goodness, there's all kinds of in-house debate in the church. Well, I'm a young earth creationist, and I'm an old earth, and all kinds of... Look, look, that's all interesting. It's all interesting, great to talk about and discuss, not get all bent out of shape with each other about it. My hope is not built on what science says about the age of the earth. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My hope is built on the one who made the earth, not the age of the earth. My hope is built on the one who lived, who died, was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and who shall return again. I can have a reasonable hope for that, right? And so can you, based upon what he has done. My hope is not in the God of the gaps. 
like, you know, like, we, well, scientists, scientists figure out this, and then they'll say, well, we don't know about this, and we'll say, oh, it's, it's God did it, God did it. Uh, we're, we're not left to that. We're not left to that. We can, we can let science go ahead and do its good work because we know that there's some things science can't answer. So it's, my hope's not in the God of the gaps. My hope's in the God of the whole show. Amen? The God of the whole show. And that brings me down to this. What are you trusting in? I'll guarantee you're trusting in something. I'll assure you of that. <laughs> Someone, something. So as you, as you think about that for just a moment, is what you're trusting in or who you're trusting in is it trustworthy? Can it bear the weight? Will it last? Will it get you through? I heard it put this away. Let's imagine that you're on a high cliff and you're losing your footing and you begin to fall. Just beside you, there's a branch that's sticking out of the edge of the cliff and it, it appears to be strong enough to support you if you reach for it. Now, you can be sure, you might be sure, okay, I'm sure, I'm sure the branch could do it, but... If you don't reach out and grab it, you're a goner. On the other hand, you might look at the branch and you might study it and you might still have some doubt. You might even have some uncertainty that the branch can really hold you. But you're compelled to reach out and grab it anyway. And if you do, you'll be saved. In spite of whatever uncertainty may be there right now, in spite of whatever doubt there may be right now, you reach out and grab it. It can save you. You know why? It's because it's, it's not the strength of your trust. It's not how really big you're trusting. No, it's the object of your trust that actually saves you. And that's the good news of the scriptures. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ is the branch and he's strong enough to save you. Where's your hope built today? Before we close, parents, your children are going back to school this week. And depending on, I guess, what grades they're in, Science may be an issue. I want to I recommend a book to you. You'll see a copy of this. It's Talking with Your Kids About God by Natasha Crane. Um, looked into this book, and there's a few chapters in this book about science, dealing with these fundamental questions about science and God and that sort of thing. It will help your child because they're, they're going to feel challenged at times. And there's going to be some people sometimes who are, who are less than noble and, and, and have a different worldview. And so you can really equip yourself and your children if you get a, a copy of this book.